Does anyone want to open us in prayer as we start into Exodus 15? All right, thank you. Today's message on Exodus 15, 1 through 21 is sing to Yahweh my salvation. As we think about singing to our Lord who has redeemed us, I want to begin with asking the question, what, what is the purpose of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? It is. It is. And we will be turning there later. So, well, why do you think that God gave us the gift of music? For our good and his glory, another way, yeah. Yeah. Because he's And since he gave us the gift, the other, the other question is, how does, he, how does he want us to use it? And what does he want to accomplish with it? Because his, his giving of this gift, he also de- defines it and uh, how, how it's to be enjoyed. And we have a rich history of songs that have been sung to our creator, redeemer. And that history, in a way, really begins here in Exodus 15. And if you'll join in looking at this text with me, we're just going to start into the first two verses, just following the deliverance of the sons of Israel with the simultaneous destruction of their Egyptian enemies. Exodus 15 begins, Then Yahweh and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh and said, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has highly exalted the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Yah is my strength and song. Here we see that all of the people who were delivered, they sing this song together. And we've moved from reading narrative to now we're reading a song. And there's a difference in what these two types of communication do. There's a difference between a narrative and a song, whereas the the narrative gives us the, the plot and perspective, as we've talked about. It explains to us what happened and the reality of theology. But songs give us an emphasis on worship. And it shows us that theology isn't something that's merely known, but it's something that's also lived. Because a theology that's merely known is not lived, and is not lived is no theology at all. Truth that is apprehended is also worship that is commended. And within songs, songs have a way of inviting somebody to meditate on certain truths about God. They also aid memorization. You know, you think a lot of times when we, when you you go away from a sermon, I mean, how many things do you remember from 
the sermon versus how many things you remember from the songs that you sang. I think for most people, they can remember more words from the songs than from the sermon at times. Songs, they give us words to express our gratitude to God. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I'm thankful, but I don't know what to say. And so I'm thankful when I have songs that help. It's like, that's the thing that I want to say. <laughs> but, uh, I need a, a worship music leader in my life so that I can have songs to express my thanksgiving to who God is and what he does. In these verses, you see, you know, what, what is it that God's people will do? They say, I will sing to Yahweh. Well, why, why will they do that? He is highly exalted. Well, how, how is he highly exalted? It says, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. And that whole display of God's judgment and his strength there is the reason to sing hallelujah, which we've talked about that means, you know, praise Yah or praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. And in this song, we read, Yah is my song. What do you think it means that the Lord is our song? It's kind of a curious thing when you get to thinking about it. And the idea here is that you know, he, he's the melody of my life. Uh, he's the catchy tune on the tip of my tongue. Uh, I delight to sing to him and about him. And what is it that Yahweh's being praised for here? You know, we don't want to overlook this. What he's being praised for is his wrath and judgment. He's being praised for the destruction that he brought and the deliverance that he brought. And this song is meant for both evangelism and discipleship. To, and this is to extend not only to Israel, not only that Israel would be evangelized and discipled, but also Egypt would come to know who is Yahweh. And then it, that would also extend all the way to the nations. And we need songs like this, songs that help us to remember to praise God for his wrath and judgment, his destruction and deliverance. And what songs like this do is remind us of what we deserved, which was God's wrath, but also what we've been graciously delivered from and to, which is from our sin and to belong to him. Can y'all think of any song examples where we sing of the wrath and judgment of God and praise him for it. And you can't pick Exodus 15 because that's one obvious answer. of ages, you hear you know, the themes and the teaching of the Passover. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. And it also emphasizes some of the same truths we're going to see in this song that this is something that we could never do for ourselves. It's not something that we share in the glory of, but it's something that God does alone by himself and for his glory alone. And you hear that in the Song of Rock of Ages, and he says, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. And you hear you know, the dual themes of salvation through judgment in the words, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And when you go on in verse 2 in Exodus 15, 
It reads, and he has become my salvation. Now, this is a salvation song. This is the emphasis and the theme of this whole song. It's explaining this salvation and how it works. You see that the singers are saying, he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, because remember, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will extol him. Notice the personal nature of this. My nature, or my salvation, my God, I will praise him. My father's God, I will extol him. This is showing the personal and relational nature of this salvation through judgment. This is not only a personal exodus, but it's also a corporate exodus. You know, we don't want to overlook that while people are saying, yeah, this is for me personally, but they're also singing it in the group of us together. The my and the I is being sung together in the us. And the focus here is on praising God, my salvation. And we continue to emphasize and to learn in the book of Exodus the dual nature of salvation, which is destruction and deliverance. And we see these realities in this song about who God is and what God does. And what is the intended goal of God's gathered people? singing about the attributes and activities of their God. Now, this is a question we asked here at the beginning. You know, what, why do we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? And as was brought up, the, the answer is in Colossians 3.16. If you want to turn there and look at that verse. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. This is the goal of God's gathered people singing. It's so that the, the word of Christ would dwell richly in y'all. Uh, it's to be songs that are skillful in teaching, that are skillful in admonishing, which another word for admonishing is counseling. You know, music is meant to teach and to counsel. And when we sing, we're to be teaching and counseling one another in the word of Christ. And that singing come, that comes out of us is to flow from a certain kind of heart. It's to flow from a grateful heart. And it's a grateful heart to God. It's not merely a heart that enjoys the act and feeling of singing, but it's an expression of heart thankfulness to the one who is my strength, my song, my salvation. And we were saved unto the joy of singing to our God about who he is, what he has taught us, and how he counsels us, and to be brought into that family where we teach and counsel one another when while we're singing to God, we're singing to one another these very truths to be that living building of living stones that are building up one another in these things as we sing together. What kind of songs does our King Redeemer want us to sing? A lot of times when we think about music, we think about you know, our preferences, what kind of songs do I like, but... We should only be thinking about those things if we were 
the Lord of the church. And the church was about us and what we wanted. But the church isn't about us. It's about us being about him. It's Jesus' church. So we want to know what kind of songs does our King Redeemer want us to sing? Well, we see that in Exodus 15 and more succinctly in Colossians 3.16. He wants us to sing songs that skillfully teach his wise word. Songs that skillfully counsel the saints by his wise counsel. Songs that give God's people words to express their gratitude back to God with the teaching and counsel he has given to richly dwell in them. In the 1761 Methodist hymn book, John Wesley writes some directions for singing. And direction number four that he writes is this. Sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. It was not only the sons of Israel who some were delivered from being slave singers for Satan. The God of Exodus 15 is our God the one who has destroyed our slavery to Satan and delivered us to sing a new song to our new king. And as Exodus is the book, which is primarily the book of the names that are about the name, it's primarily about revealing God's name, and it just keeps expanding on the greatness of who he is and greater and greater detail. And in verse three, we learn more of God's name. It says, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. We see that it is the nature and character and likeness of God to be a warrior for his people. And we get the details on how Yahweh revealed himself as a warrior as the self-existent, self-sustaining creator and controller of creation and the next words in this song. So I'm going to read a larger section here as we go through it. And there's two things that I want you to do. One, listen for the creation language. You know, as we've gone through Exodus, you keep seeing all this language that ties back into the, the creation account to display that this one God is the only creator and controller. So listen for creation language. The second thing is look for his loving kindness. Now this is one of the things that we have seen here, but this is where it gets explicitly stated. So listen for creation language. Look for his loving kindness. Pick up in verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea and the choicest of his officers are sunk in the reed sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your exaltation, you pull down those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it devours them as chaff. And at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be fulfilled against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will dispossess them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. 
in your loving kindness. You have guided the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have led them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling seizes them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone until your people pass over, O Yahweh, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for you to inhabit, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever, for the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. Here you see that God's missionary purpose is praised and extended in the things that are sung in this song, that it was known to Israel and Egypt and now to Philistia and Edom and Canaan. And verses 7 and 8 remind us of God's supremacy, that he changes the direction of those who rise up by pulling them down. He takes the Babylonians who tried to build a tower up and he comes down to see it and then he brings the whole thing down. He sends forth his anger on Pharaoh who wouldn't send out his people when God told him to send out his people and he makes him send out his people because God is the curse reverser. He's the God of Abraham who made a promise to build a nation out of his children, and he must and will do it. The Lord is the Lord over everything in creation, from water to land to the sky, which we see in the plagues, all the way down to the little heart of Pharaoh. He is the Lord even of that, of the heart of the world's greatest and most evil superpower at that point. He says, I'm so sovereign over creation that I can even control evil like that. In verses 9 and 10, you see how the enemy contrasts with God's people, or God's people saying, I will praise Yahweh for these things. Well, the enemy, in contrast and rebellious pride, says that, they will do all of these certain things. It's not about what God will do, but about what they think that they will do and overthrowing him. But while their desire is to rebel against God, God says, my desire shall be fulfilled against them. And there's this sort of play on words that happens where it is expressed that the enemy is full of hot air when they're saying, I will do this. And God says, those who are full of hot air, when I blow on them, they will be no more. God's victory is the display of the development that moves from Genesis 3.15 and the snake crusher promise to the Noahic creation covenant where God promised to continue to control and sustain his creation until he brings it all back into his rest to the Abrahamic patriarch covenant that God will bring his people back into his land under his blessing and rest forever and develop to that nation that was promised to come from Abraham. Now it's beginning to be birthed in a way, you could say they're in uh, the birth pangs at this point. And the sons of Israel in verse 11, they sing, who is like you? Which reminds us of the exclusivity and the uniqueness 
of God, that he's in a category of his own. No one is like him. No one is like him among the gods. He has destroyed all of them, including Pharaoh, who thought of himself as the king of kings, the lord of lords, and the god of gods over all of creation. No one is like him, majestic in holiness. And note how this concept of holiness is not just tied to God's moral purity and being the the standard of morality. Instead of looking at his moral holiness, it's looking at his majestic holiness, his uniqueness, his strength, which brings him to be fearsome in praises. And you see, it's not, it's not just the delivered who are fearing him. It's the destroyed and those who see all of this happening, who have a kind of fear toward him. That every knee is brought to bow and to confess him as Yahweh, who is fearsome and praises working wonders, and these events here prove it. The plagues, the pillar, the Red Sea, the destruction of Israel's enemies, and the deliverance of a people that weren't delivered because they were great, or because they were lovely, or because they asked for it, or because they could add some sort of benefit to God, but because he made a promise to that family for this to happen. In verses 12 and 13, you might remember from last week when we talked about the pillar of cloud and fire, the focus that was revealed about God's name there is that God is our guide. But here in verses 12 and 13, we learn that his guidance is in loving kindness. We're continuing to learn more about his name. This is the character of God's guidance, loving kindness. And notice that God's loving kindness is sung without any tension with his anger shown toward his enemy. God is one. He can't be divided in his attributes. You can't divide his loving kindness from his anger. You can't say that he's more this than that at times. Uh, he's more angry or more loving at times. He kind of fluctuates at, at times when it's appropriate. Uh, he's not like that. Uh, he's not given to the sort of change that we have in ourselves. He's not like us. No one is like him who is perfectly everything that he is all the time. And you see these things held in balance without tension, even in this concept of salvation. That salvation, when it happens, it simultaneously brings both destruction and deliverance. You can't divide those two any more than you can divide who God is in his essence. And you see that his guidance here is in, in loving kindness. His guidance isn't like Pharaoh's guidance, which was a burden of works performed for him that could never be completed, that was always a burden and never restful. But God's guidance is loving kindness, and it's works that are performed by him for his glory. And in this reality, we see the difference between the only two religions that exist, the religion of do and the religion of done, the religion of being based on works to the religion that's based on loving kindness. And this word, loving kindness, gets translated a few different ways when you move into the scriptures that were translated from the Greek text, and it's most often translated as grace. That's the word grace. He's the God of loving kindness and truth. He's the God of grace and 
truth. You know, the, the only true religion is the religion of done. It's loving kindness, grace-based religion. And this also teaches us not only about who God is, but what he does in his salvation. In loving kindness, he destroys our old life and delivers us into new life. It's a work that he does alone, and he doesn't share this glory with another. And in this section that we're looking at in Exodus 15, we see that it's his strength alone that he leads his people into his holy habitation. So now think about that holy habitation. Think about the, the context of Exodus is Genesis through Deuteronomy. So now think backwards into holy and habitation. What are some things that you think Moses is trying to bring out and connect our minds to, especially since you see he's given a lot of the creation language, you know, the deeps, the waters, the separation from the water, the land, holy habitation, and the beginning of Genesis. Where is it? Yeah, it's, it's Eden. And it says, and holy. Where do you first hear this word, holy? Start thinking through the days of creation. Yeah. Yeah, it was made holy. So the, the habitation is formed and filled, and that, that formed and filled habitation is to be set apart. You know, these are synonyms for holiness. You know, set apart, consecrated, sanctified. And it's his holy seventh day that's to be enjoyed in his holy place as his holy people, where God and his work is rested in by enjoying who he is and what he has done eternally. That's a day without beginning or end. That's a day of his holy people and his holy place by God's majestic holy power. You see that these concepts of holiness and Sabbath rest are teaching that began there and it moves forward to this point with the idea of the salvation being from this fallen place that you're in to this place of being redeemed and to rest. What do you think these sort of ideas of a habitation and holiness is going to connect to next? Yeah, tabernacle. That's a holy habitation. It's a holy place where you have to be made holy to commune with a holy God. And what we're seeing here is that the Exodus has only happened in part. This is just stage one because the, the Exodus ultimately won't be over until everything is tabernacle. The Exodus won't be over until everything is temple. The, the Exodus won't be over until an entire ends of the earth sanctification happens where everything's brought back into God's rest. And this is our hope that God's going to do that. He's going to extend his glory, his name, his redemption to the ends of the earth. That the end goal is that we must and will be brought back into the garden temple and everything will be holied back to God. You know, if we could turn holy into a verb, yeah, it'll be holied back to God, you know, consecrated back to him, sanctified back to him. He's going to bring about a retribution and recompense. You know, the, the gift of creation that he gave to man to have dominion over, he's going to take it back and give it back. He's going to do this in relation to all of the major relationships we have. He's going to restore us to God, to other men, and the land. He's going to do all of this by his command. God, land, man, command. Which was a sermon outline for 
text of Genesis a long time ago, before Katie went to the Masters University. In returning back here in Exodus 15, we read that Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them. That word brought back is a word that's used to teach the concept of repentance in Scripture. It's a word that has to do with a, a change of direction. And you end up learning something about how repentance works through following how this word is used throughout this section in Scripture. Because as we've talked about a, a narrative, it gives us the plot of what happened, but it gives us a perspective. It gives us a perspective on this idea of repentance, of being brought back, of turning, of the change of mind, of a change of direction to give us a perspective on what should be our worldview of turning back to God. How does that work? It says Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them, that's the Egyptians, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. This word brought back that communicates the concept of repentance, it's also translated in chapter 13, verse 17, this way, when God didn't guide the sons of Israel by the way of the land, because as God said to him, he said, lest the people change their minds. That's that same word there. Lest they change their minds and they see war and return to Egypt. And part of what we learn about repentance is that the natural man only knows wrong repentance. He only knows the wrong way to do it. He doesn't know how to turn to God and he doesn't have the ability to do that. It's not something that enters into his mind. But rather it's a fear not of God, but of something else in this world. But in 14.2, God speaks to his messenger Moses and he says, Speak to the sons of Israel so that they turn back. That's that word again. So that they would turn back and camp before. Who wants to try to read that Hebrew place name? Beautiful. What we see is God knew that Israel was more apt to turn back to their old ways than their only hope of turning the right way. I'm trying to make sure my sentence makes sense here. He, he had to command them to turn, and then he had to be the one to turn them. They couldn't do it. He's commanding them to do something that they don't have the capacity to do. Yes, thank you, Augustine. Yes, beautiful. And then moving to 1426, this word's translated again. It says, then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back. So you see this idea of repentance is, there's these waters that they come back and it comes back over the Egyptians, their chariots, their horsemen, it comes back over your old slave master. It comes back over your old way of life. It comes back over you know, the power that used to control you. And in 1427, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its, that's our word again, returned, to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, we see in this idea of repentance, it's, it's something that God does. It's when he decides to destroy enemies in your life that it happens. When he decides to destroy the old way of life and to bring you into the new. Continue in the same line of thought as in 1428. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. You see, this is a, a total turning. It's not just a part turning. 
Repentance involves water coming back over your old slavery. But you see, you're seeing the whole concept of baptism immersion here. But, you know, these people are being you know, baptized into Moses and what God was doing you know, through him in that particular covenant. And we're being taught in what's, we're going to hear about the Mosaic covenant later, which if you were to sum it up in one word and what it's about, it's instruction. It's the instruction covenant. It is not the salvation covenant. It is not the, this is how you get closer to God covenant. It is the instruction covenant that says, he's good, you're not, and you need somebody to save you. (laughs) This idea of repentance, it means that it also means things returning to what they ought to be. See, the idea from old creation to new creation. It means the burial of your old life and resurrection to new life. It means that you don't have to live where you were anymore, but it means you do have to move. Uh, you have to go somewhere else, and I've prepared a place for you and have gone before you and I will bring you with me and I will not lose one. Cross reference John 10. And then coming to our song in Exodus 15, 19, it makes it clear that this change of mind, return, repentance is from the old life toward a new life in God. And it's God alone who brings this salvation through judgment of sins and enemy. And 1519, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. They were rescued from the waters of death and brought into the land of life, as it were. And you're seeing this development in Scripture that what happened to Noah in the water happened to Moses. What happened to Moses in the water happened to Israel. And this keeps developing. And this happens with Joshua and the next generation of Israelites. And eventually it connects into, it happens to the greater than Moses, which is Jesus. And it happens to us that we're brought from death to life, from old slavery to new slavery, from one master to uh, another, from burden to rest, death and resurrection, from that to this. And Yahweh alone is the one who destroys the old slave master and delivers us into a new land with a new master. And while Israel would still need a future heart exodus, this is still an event to celebrate, even though it's not totally done. It'll be finished when it's finished, but it doesn't mean, and they say, well, the whole thing wasn't done, so there's really no need to sing yet. Singing is to continue, and we see that in Exodus 15, 20, and Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister took the tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Here we see that Miriam is labeled as the prophetess and she had the unique role of conveying the the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. That's what she's singing about. She's singing about the seed of the woman, which is part of why I think there's that focus. It's like, well, why is there this focus on these women all of a sudden? Well, to remember that the seed of the woman has to come through this family. You You see, God's been faithful to his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the, the land thing is happening, but how's the 
seed thing going to happen and the blessing thing. And it's a little reminder of that, of the seed of the woman, of snake crusher prophecy, of curse reverser prophecy. And she does all of this under the discipleship ministry of Moses. And he's the one who taught this song, not only to the sons of Israel, but also the women within it. And Miriam, well, she is certainly Moses' sister. This text just points out, this is Aaron's sister. He was the oldest brother in the group. And Marion and Aaron were linked together in a subordinate role and under the unique leadership role that God had given to their brother Moses. Now, they're going to challenge that in Numbers chapter 12 when they're saying, well, you know, God speaks to us too. I mean, why can't we do all the stuff that you're doing? And we'll eventually get to that some someday, Lord willing. But in that moment, what you see is something similar to this event when Moses fulfills his mediatorial role and he prays for their healing because he knows the God who is our salvation. Exodus 15 here is the first singing and song of God's people in Scripture. The purpose of it is to teach us and counsel us in the attributes and activity of our God. It's a song about who God is and what God does. It's not a song about who we are and what we do, which is going to ruin a bunch of modern songs for you, which is okay. You know, just let them be ruined. There's other good songs out there. We'll pick the good ones that uh, never ruin, like Exodus 15. Notice also this, this song is, it's God-focused. It's not self-focused, which when we get that, it brings everything into focus. Because so often we tend to look at the inward and the outward in life and we forget to look upward. And we look inward at, I'm anxious about this. We look outward at, these things are happening. <laughs> but we must not forget to look upward at the God who is with us in the circumstances that he has ordained for us, which is the case of everything that is happening in the Exodus that God foretold. And we don't want to forget the things that we've been taught about God's name nature here. He's the God who guides us. Uh, he is the one who is my strength, my song, and my salvation. And he's the God who turns us to answer other people who are, they're concerned about how anxious we are and they're concerned about the circumstances that we're in. But he turns us from focusing on our anxieties and our circumstances to say to him, now, I want you to know, brother, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, which was something that was definitely true on the other side of the Red Sea. Uh, those who could receive it, could say that very thing because we're about to get ready to get into the all the complaining about the water and the food and the stuff. And it's like, brother, I want you to know that the gospel has extended not only to us and to Egypt, but also to Philistia and Edom and Canaan. These things have really turned out for the greater evangelism of the nations. <laughs> I don't know that anybody said that then, but uh, I know that God can take an Israel like that and change their hearts to say something like that because he did so with the Benjamite Paul, whom I quoted from Philippians 112. Exodus 15 is a song and truths that we're to continue to sing. It gives us words to sing our gratefulness to the God of our salvation. And Exodus is a song and truths that will be sung when the greater and final Exodus happens in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn to see that, that's where we're going to end. It's in Revelation 15.3. Revelation 15.3. 
in Revelation 15, 3, it says, and they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God. You see all the Exodus theology coming back. It's like all the stuff they think about, they sing about. You also see that the Legacy Standard Bible is awesome and that it puts slave there to help you tie the, the author's intended slavery theology together. It says, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, all of that theology and teaching and counseling and hope that is given in Exodus 15 is there sung again and condensed into the song of the Lamb. These are eternal truths to continue to be known and sung. There's a couple other echoes of that song and revelation that I'll just mention as we close. And one of them's in the Revelation eleven fifteen, when the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And we see all of these things come together in Revelation nineteen six, when John writes, then I heard something like the voice of a great crowd and like the sound of many waters. You hear it say, oh man, it's like we're all, we're back in the whole Exodus thing again, there's, and there's water. And it was not just the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, and here's what it said, hallelujah. It says, praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And all of this happens right before the next Passover, right before the next Lord's Supper, right before the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just like the Exodus event has three phases, so does that sort of celebration supper have three phases. And this is the final one. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day, we will sing before our supper and celebrate.